People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Big show for today. We'll be joined in the studio later by Rekhot Sofetse Chikani. He's the author of Breaking a Rainbow, Building a Nation, published by Picador Africa. It's the politics behind the hashtag must fall movements. That's Rekhot Sofetse Chikani. He'll be in the studios in the second half of the show. And until then, we've got a number of books to talk about and to review. And we're going to start with The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker. Pat Barker is the author of a number of historical fictions. She was born in Yorkshire. She began her literary career in her 40s when she took a short writing course taught by Angela Carter. Encouraged by Carter to continue writing and exploring the lives of working-class women, she, set, she sent her fiction out to publishers. Thirty-five years later, she has published 50 novels, including her masterful Regeneration trilogy, set in the First World War, has been made a CBE for services to literature and won awards, including the Guardian Fiction Prize and the UK's highest literary honour, the Booker Prize. The book that has just been released by Hamish Hamilton, part of the Penguin Random House stable of companies, is called The Silence of the Girls. <coughs> and it's available now in the shops. And it's a book that takes on as its inspiration a very, <coughs> a very, very famous piece of, <coughs> sorry, Western literature which is the story of the Iliad. <coughs> the Iliad written by Homer, which is the story of <coughs> the war against, <coughs> the Greek war against the the city of Troy. The Iliad, a famous, famous poem, over 15,000 lines of poetry, one of the great foundation stones of Western literature, is the store of war. The Greek war, as I said, against the city of Troy and the destruction of, of Troy. The war itself was fought over a woman. Menelaus, the king of Sparta's wife, was taken. It's not clear from the actual text. Kidnapped, or if she went willingly, to the prince of Troy. His name was Paris. And then the Greek kings created an alliance different Greek city-states to go and fight against the city of Troy for the return of Paris, uh, sorry, for the return of Helen. Helen became known as Helen of Troy, but she really was the queen of Sparta. And in this story of the Iliad, there are a number of women who really only play small roles within the story. But what Pat Barker has done, just like she's done in her other historical nonfiction, she's made the women the central focus of her writing. Remember Briseis? Probably not. If you have not read the Iliad, you almost certainly never heard of her. And even if you have read the Iliad, you'll quite probably have forgotten who she is. Briseis is not in the Premier League of Homeric heroes, not an Achilles, not, in a, not a Hector, nor an Ajax, or even a Helen. Even Homer barely bothers with Briseis. She gets a mere 10 mentions in the poem's 15,693 lines, and each one just a glancing blow. 
But Pat Barker has written an entire novel about Brissace. It's called The Silence of the Girls. This, the title whispers, is not going to be an epic in the glorifying war sort of vein. Sure enough, it is not. In the opening paragraph, the tone is set. Great Achilles. Brilliant Achilles. Shining Achilles. Godlike Achilles. We never called him any of those things. We called him the butcher. This book is a brilliant idea. The Trojan War was begun over a woman. As Barker's title makes clear, you almost never hear from her or from most of the other women in Homer's, in Homer's stories. And when you do, it's in the context of men. Helen is Helen, the face that launched a thousand ships, not Helen, who was, a wonderful, who was wonderful at telling jokes. Women almost always appear next to a possessive genitive. Helen is Menelaus's wife. Andromache is Hector's wife. The word Briseis is a genitive of the most fundamental kind. It means the daughter of Briseus. Her other name really used was Hippodamia. But Briseis matters. If it is Helen who causes the Trojan War, it is Briseis who causes the events of the Iliad. As the novel opens, the Trojan War is almost a bloody decade old. Nothing much has changed. There's a stalemate between the Greek forces and the city of Troy. Then Larnessus, a local city, within a few hours, the smells of sweaty bodies has almost become unbearable. Not so unbearable as what is coming. Briseis watches as Achilles hacks his way through their men, guts spilling and mouths gaping like scarlet flowers. A moment later, he's at her brother. Then her brother is on the ground, dead. Not much later, Briseis herself has been taken into Achilles' bed, and she's forced to become his lover. The plot, therefore, thereafter, is instantly recognizable if you've read the Iliad, and as confusing as the quarreling of Syrian factions in the Syrian civil war, if you haven't. For various reasons, Agamemnon, he's the, the, the chief king of all the Greek, of all the Greek kings, Amagemnon has to return his prize wife, Chryseus, and so he takes Achilles' prize wife, Briseis, in return. So Achilles, feeling absolutely insulted, refuses to fight. Because Achilles isn't fighting against the Trojans, his close friend, Patroclus, is killed. And then Hector, from the side of, the, of Troy, is killed. And then Achilles is killed. So because of a fight over Briseis, the war between the Greeks and the Trojans takes on a whole different direction. This is the book, The Silence of the Girls, in which the story of the Iliad is told over from the perspective of women, specifically from Briseis. Briseis. Barker's novel has a very clear feminist message about the struggle for women to extricate themselves from male-dominated narratives. In the hands of a lesser writer, it could have felt preachy. The attempt to provide Briseis with a happy ending is thin, and sometimes the female character's legitimate outrage seems a bit predictable, as when we hear Helen thinking, I'm here, me, a person, not just an object to be looked at, and fought over. 
Barker has an almost Homeric gift for similes. Here are some of them. That shining moment when the din of battle fades and your body's a rod connecting earth and sky. Or Achilles' friend Patroclus dying, thrashing like a fish in a pool that's drying out. There is a Homeric simplicity and drive in some of the sentences. And she's Homeric too in her attentiveness to what what happens between people and to the details of the physical world. The food, the wine, the clothes, the noise, the feel of skin, blood, bones, crackling wounds and screams. Barker, like Homer, understands grief and loss. She sees how alone people can be even when they are crying together. Loneliness is community. Loneliness in community is one of the major themes of this book, as it is of the Iliad. The gods remain mostly off stage, but they are present in the background, magically restoring the mutilated dead body of Hector. The sea god Thetis, Achilles's mother, is a briny, frightening presence, as are the dark shore and the waves by which the whole horrible story takes place. This is an important, powerful, memorable book that invites us to look differently not only at the Iliad, but at our own ways of telling stories from the past and the present, and at how anger and hatred play out in our societies. The defeated go down in history and disappear, and their stories die with them. Pat Barker's novel, The Silence of the Girls, is an invitation to tell those forgotten stories and to listen for voices silenced by history and power. So this is the book, The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker. It's published by Hamish Hamilton, and it's a retelling of the story of the Iliad, but from the perspective of a woman, Briseis, was captured by the army of Achilles, forced to become his mistress, fought over by an Achilles and one of the Greek kings, Agamemnon. And it's a powerful, I suppose, in the age of hashtag me too, it's a powerful feminist retelling of one of the cornerstones of Western literature, the Iliad. The next book we're going to look at, we're going to go somewhere halfway between historical fiction and crime. It's a book called The Treachery of Spies by Amanda Scott. When Inspector Inez Pico is called to investigate the horrific murder of a strikingly beautiful elder lady, she's puzzled. Whilst the identity of the woman has been erased, it's clear that she she has been killed in the same way that traitors to the French resistance were executed in the Second World War. Solving the mystery will lead Inez deep into the history of this woman, the victim of the crime, and back to a time when the men and women of the 1940s France were engaged in a desperate, brutal fight for survival against their Nazi oppressors. As more and more secrets come to light, Inez discovers that there are many in the present who would rather their past stay buried and many who would kill to keep secrets safe. Manda Scott is a novelist, a blogger, columnist, and a broadcaster based in Shropshire in the UK. Her works have been many, ranging from a series of crime novels to large amounts of hugely popular historical fiction. A Treachery of Spies seems the perfect blend for Scott's skill, as a tightly plotted crime story is intricately threaded around historical fiction 
that instantly transports the reader to the dark and dangerous world of occupied France. What's rather nice is that two remarkably strong women are at the heart of the storyline, both fascinating and both brought to life by intelligent character study and development throughout the novel. That constant development is what makes the book so good. It sits alongside the thrilling crime elements of the plot and the history together with all the character development. And it's never weighed down. Instead, all of these elements help the reader truly care about these two women, ensuring that any dramatic tension, and there's a lot of it, is sufficiently heightened and allows the stakes to feel somewhat personal for the reader. That experience that Amanda Scott has in historical fiction clearly goes a long way towards building a setting that feels as vivid as it's factually accurate. The period detail of occupied France is vivid and swiftly pulls the reader into a dark and turbulent world. The past alternates with the modern day story exceptionally well, although you might find yourself being drawn to one of the two threads. If you like historical fiction, you'll find the part set in the 1940s in occupied France. You can't wait to get back to that element of the novel. If you enjoy crime fiction, you'll find the part of the novel set in the modern day. That You can't wait for those chapters to come and for the, the mystery to be further developed and cracked and solved. As the tensions rise and the suspense heightens, the reader is thrown into a climax that is as exciting as it is satisfying, closing doors and answering questions, but hopefully leaving things just a little open for exploration in a future Amanda Scott novel. The Treachery of Spies is an original, exciting thriller that, once you start, becomes impossible to put down. So that's A Treachery of Spies by Amanda Scott, it's historical fiction together with crime thriller all thrown in together. We're going back to occupied France, the French resistance, and then the collaborators, the French collaborators with the Germans, all put together in a novel. Look out for it when you go shopping for book clubs or just for holiday reading. That's A Treachery of Spies. And that's the second quite feminist uh, book that we've looked at today The First The Silence of the Lambs by Pat Barker This one right now Treachery of Spies by Amanda Scott We'll be back with more straight after this ad break People of the Book on 101.9 High FM This is People of the Book We are talking books We've discussed two books Both with very strong feminist themes The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker It's the retelling of the Iliad but from the perspective of Briseis, the woman who was the queen of her town, close to the city of Troy, the city was defeated by the Greeks. She was taken by Achilles as a prize lover, as the prize of spoils of the war. And it's the, telling, the retelling of the Iliad, but from the perspective of Briseis and the women in the camp, the Greek camp. Then we looked at... Uh, Amanda Scott's book A Treachery of Spies set between the current modern day and Second World War uh, the Second World War in in uh, in in France and for the rest of the show we have an interview our, our guest our interview guest has just arrived the book is called Breaking a Rainbow Building a Nation 
and Rechot sorry, Chotzi, but I want to pronounce your name correctly yeah. because you do make a point in the book that names are very important. Rechot Sofetse Chikani is joining us in the studio today. He is the author of the book. He is also very much one of South Africa's fast-rising political players. He was very involved in the hashtag must fall movements, both roads must fall and fees must fall. But he's not just a, a student activist. Khotsi has also graduated from the University of Oxford after completing a master's of public policy, a degree, in, yeah, a master's degree in, of, in public policy. He was also Mandela Rhodes Scholar in 2015, and the Mail and Guardian included him in their top 200 young South Africans list in 2016. He's also been involved in the Inkulu Freyhate, a non-partisan youth organization focused on deepening democracy and enhancing social cohesion. So from that involvement, it sounds like you're quite neutral or you want to cover as many groups yeah. as possible in your thought and in your activism. So here today we have him in studio yeah. to discuss a whole lot of ideas that are really current and burning issues of South Africa. Welcome to our studio. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm going to start off with the question that everyone gets when they sit in your seat. Okay, go. <laughs> Please introduce yourself in your own words and on your own terms. Oh, wow. But on your own terms is interesting. <laughs> um, so as you said, I'm Rihotso Fete Chikani. Um, most people just call me Hotsi, and I, it's interesting that you picked it up. It's a, my name is interesting. It's quite long, but once you just commit to it, most people just get it right. It actually has like a yeah. musical quality. Yeah. I enjoy saying your name. It's like, it's like five syllables, boom, 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 um, and it kind of works out. So I'm, it depends. I had a conversation with my supervisor. He says I must keep telling people that I'm still studying. Um, at vets currently as well. So <laughs> they want to claim yeah, they, they, well. they want to claim me there. Um, so I, if I had to explain myself on my own terms, it is a social activist, writer, and someone who just has an inquisitive mind um, and enjoys having debates, um, but doesn't enjoy when people get too angry about a debate um, because I like having debates and discussions because it helps my inquisitive mind out a lot. Um, and that's at the heart of some of the things I try and get into the book of. There's certain things that we just kind of take as a norm in our society. And I step back and I say, I don't know. I don't know if there's a norm we should accept. Even though it's become um, prevalent, it doesn't mean that it's okay. Um, but you need someone to ask that initial question before you can even have a conversation about it. So I'd like probing if I had to describe myself on my own terms. <laughs> The very beginning of the book, you talk about being a coconut, yeah, and you describe yourself in that with that term. What is a coconut as you describe yourself? Because maybe your definition might differ from the way that it's colloquially used in South Africa. Yeah, and why do you view them as such a pivotal group in the development, the ongoing development of our nation? Yeah. So, for those who don't know, a coconut is often used as a derogatory term. So it's this idea that you are a black individual on the outside, but deep down you're white. Like you act like a white person, you have white person, you have like white traits and personalities and stereotypes that you just fulfill. One of them is if you speak in a certain way, therefore you're a coconut. It's a very bizarre way, but it's a way of 
othering within the black community. It's a way of saying you're not black enough to really be part of the core group. Um, and it's constantly been used that way. I got called a coconut when I was younger. Do you still affect me now? Not so much. Um, and about two years ago, three years ago, um, this brilliant, so there's this Ruth First lecture that happens. And Panache Chukumadze, brilliant writer, um, did her Ruth First lecture, which is really prestigious. And she flipped the script on the term coconut. And she said coconut should be seen as a political grouping. Now, she kind of took it in her own direction. I thought political movement is actually fascinating. Um, and at that time, I was in the midst of Rhodes Must Fall, where there were certain questions that the answers just seemed a bit fuzzy. And it's because I was asking it in the terms of political groupings instead of identity groupings, and in particular, coconuts. So in my terms, coconuts would be a political grouping in our society that is able to navigate spaces that not many people are able to um, and carry with them political weight. So I describe it as, and there might be a few people who might not know these terms, it's I can go tonight, Friday night, go to Zone 6 in Soweto, wake up the next morning, end up in Bramfontein um, for Neighbor Goods Market, transfer to Mabuneng, have dinner in Santon, and then go back to Soweto to have church on Sunday, right? Not many people can make those social transitions in our society and feel comfortable in each and every one of those spaces. Now, coconuts are able to do that. They get access into spaces and they carry with them in those spaces this political capital. And why I think they're very interesting is what do they do with this political capital? So often within the student protests, if you speak well, you're therefore intelligent. It's a weird it's a weird fallacy. But if you speak well, therefore you're intelligent. Or if you speak well, you can advocate for us in a negotiating table. Now, if you take individuals like that and you just implicitly just put your trust in them, put them in the negotiating table, and then hope that they fight for everyone's needs, even though they don't experience some of the harshest realities of society on an everyday basis, can you truly trust them negotiating on your behalf? And that's the question that I try and play around with of, can you trust them in that aspect? Can you trust the coconut who has this political leverage, who also has their own self-interest at play to just say, you know what, maybe I'll give up my, my privileges and help society as a whole. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And you see the coconuts playing a big role in that. Yeah, it was, I remember a couple of years ago, I won't mention names, but I remember someone told me that one of the most prominent leaders came from one of the top so one of the most prominent leaders in Fismas Fall came from one of the top IEB schools in the country. And I thought, that's, that's bizarre. Because <laughs> I also come from an IEB school. So the question was, be inquisitive. How many other pockets of the country, so different universities, have their top most prevalent leaders coming from either an IEB school or really good Model C school? And there are so many. This is WITS, UCT, Rhodes, NMMU, UKZN to an extent, Stellenbosch, the list goes on. And the question is, how, how did that happen? It wasn't like we sat in a corner and all plotted together to say, we're going to take over the movement. This naturally happened without anyone watching. And the question is, what are the consequences for that? Very interesting. Very interesting hearing all that. Um, when you talk about coconuts, you then talk about whiteness. Yes. As the way you, 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 you discuss whiteness, it's almost as if whiteness is a construct that has been structurally built into South African society and it exerts a very strong influence on how people present themselves. Yeah. 
Can you talk around that point? Yeah, it's about how you adjust your behavior in a particular room. So let's use the Rainbow Nation narrative or metaphor. So I use in the book this, everyone loves the Rainbow Nation metaphor um, because it's all these colors and it, South Africa is multiracial and super diverse and we look really beautiful when we're all together. And I said, that's fantastic, except it's also the worst metaphor to use for us because it perfectly explains the reality of our country of all the colors of the rainbow run in parallel next to each other. They never really intersect. And that kind of explains our country. White people kind of stay in their lane. Black people kind of stay in their lane. Colored people kind of stay in their lane. And there's a whole host of reasons for that. Apartheid segregation laws that are still prevalent in society. People's own prejudices. People just being more comfortable. People who look like themselves. There's tons of reasons. But moments of interaction, right? So in a rainbow where the colors do intersect, there's always this white hue. And there's moments of true, of true, I'm on radio, I'm doing like the quotation marks of true integration is always on this white term, right, or whiteness. So if it is a sporting event, that's when we think we are truly integrating. But it's never really a sporting event that everyone plays, except for the Soccer World Cup, which is a huge exception. It's usually like when we're all together at a cricket match, we're diverse, when we're all together at a rugby match, we're all diverse. When we're all together at a soccer match, it's an exotic trip into the township. Um, it's an exotic trip into something unknown. Um, if it's shopping malls, there was this huge study, an amazing study, not huge, but an amazing study done a couple of years ago um, where essentially they said moments where South Africans interact the most are sporting events and shopping malls, which I thought was fascinating. <laughs> um, so whiteness is... Dominant spaces where the people who feel more comfortable just happen to be white or have white traits, right? It's not necessarily to say if it's white, it's bad. It's to say that if a black person comes into that space, they have to adjust their behavior to fit into the norm of that space because that's a, a normalcy, essentially, rather than if someone comes in through the opposite turn of if I go into a black space, it's seen as exotic, it's seen as the, the phrase that I hate the most, a township tour. I've never heard the phrase of a suburban tour. Right? No one goes into like the Orange Grove being like, I'm on the Orange Grove tour today. And that's what I mean by this term whiteness and what it, how it adjusts people's behavior. And I go into more details and examples, but Roads Must Fall is a good example of students saying there's certain things that happen on campus that affect, uh, that affect black students more than white students. There are certain norms that we have to become accustomed to on campus that are support or privilege white students over black students. And the question is, can we pick them out, right? Can we verbalize them? That's probably the most important one. Can we verbalize them? And then can we verbalize them to someone else to say, yeah, this has been working, but it doesn't work for the majority of us. Um, and we have to change that in one way or another. Now, that's a very, like, way of describing it but it's the best way to think of it is if you have ever thought about going on a suburban tour um, of Claremont in Cape Town um, or of Santon then you are not engaging in a space where you feel uncomfortable where you have to adjust right you this is the norm for you Whereas for other people, going into these spaces is an adjustment. It's an adjustment from your norm, and the majority of South Africans do face that, at least in my opinion. So that's, your, that's, that's how you, you're viewing the, that phrase, whiteness. Yeah. I mean, you could view it in various different ways. So some students will come out and be like, whiteness is just white people. And I say, well, that's a bit 
limiting <laughs> in many, many respects. But most people will try and interpret it as a dominant norm within a room that forces you to adjust out of your position to appease white people in the room or to make them, and this is the most important one, underlined, feel more comfortable in a space. It's that comfortability that's really at the core of it. This is a, a Jewish radio station. We have, yeah. I think, most, it could possibly be true that majority of our listeners actually aren't Jewish. And this yes. is a very, very general interest book show. Yeah. Uh, the books that I review here are from across the board, anything and everything, fiction, nonfiction, from South Africa, from UK, from Israel, but not necessarily specifically yeah. America, Australia, wherever. We, we, we review all books. Yeah. As a Jewish person, I often I went to government school for primary school. I often had that experience that my culture wasn't the main culture of yep. the school. I always felt a sense of otherness. Yeah. Uh, my, 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 my points of reference that I got from home and from my community were not the common points of reference that I had at school. But I learned to adapt and I learned to be the same person in different contexts. Yes. What, are you, what is your – and, and as a Jew living in South Africa, proudly South African. Yeah. And when I partake in widely South African um, events, I am a South African. Yeah. When I go home, when I go to my shul, when I pray, I'm a Jew. Yeah. Living in South Africa, I've got these different identities. Yes. That I can go seamlessly from one to the other. I don't even feel a sense of contradiction. Yeah. What is your goal for black people? What would be your dream ideal dream for black for all people? Black people. <laughs> all, you, for people who experience this whiteness yeah. as a, 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 something that's forcing them to change how they speak, how they behave. Yeah. What would be the end goal for you? What would be a successful transition in South Africa from the perspective no, you've, you've come that's from? A fantastic you've question. come from. You've you've written your you've written your feelings very strongly in the book. And yeah. You talk about the sixteen fifty twos. It's the first time I've ever seen that because I don't really take too much. Um, I, I don't. Inv I don't. I'm, I'm not so active in the, the South African Twitter sphere. Yes. But you, you've got really strong feelings. Yeah. Ultimate end. What would you like? How would you like? Yeah. A person to live in South Africa without feeling this whiteness. So on both sides, right, because white people can feel whiteness as well, whether they consciously or unconsciously realize it. But if I had to talk about black people, it would be how do you – the question is how do you stop trying to be the right kind of black person in the right type of situation? Um, and when I, what I mean by that is how do you stop yourself from constantly adjusting? Well, in order to do that, you need to realize who you are first. Right, and I don't mean like the. So there are some people who say I. Know, so also individuals would say I know who I am if I can recite all my clan names because then I know where my family comes from. Um, my family doesn't have that in particular. Um, it's just been Chigani, 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 and then we kind of lose track. <laughs> after we're trying to build our family tree, though, so it's just fantastic. But it would be how do you start realizing who you are, and your value within a space in society, not necessarily in all of society, but within a particular space, whether it's your workplace, whether it's a classroom. So Rhodes must fall at the very beginning, actively try to say, in order to understand who you are, we need to give you the words to describe it, right? Some people, one of the beautiful things about Rhodes must fall at the beginning was 
it brought us all together and said, all of us face these challenges. All of us have these issues of feeling displaced within the university, not feeling part of the university for whatever reasons. But we didn't have a common language for all of us to come together. It was one of the biggest issues. So we gave people the common language. Fallism became one of the ideologies that said, have your common language. And once you have that language, you started having these intense conversations where students who never talked in plenary before, so plenary big meeting with students, would all of a sudden come out and tell their tale at UCT to say, this is how I've experienced certain prejudices. This is how I've experienced certain issues within my society. And I've gotten to this point of I can now verbalize what the issue is. The second step after that is once you are able to verbalize, can you then picture yourself within the space as your own identity, right? That's the second step. A lot of people can get to through step one. A lot of people can get through step two. The most difficult one is then communicating your new identity within a space without being rejected. And this is where white people or colored people or anyone of difference has to come in. Of If someone now says, this is how I feel in a space, and I've gone through this process of understanding the problem, I've explained the problem to you, here's my particular solution of solution being this is my new identity or this is the identity I want you to respect, do you then downplay it? So if I come out and I say, I'm not too picky about my name, but if I say to someone, my name is Rehotsofetsi, and then someone comes back and says, do you have a nickname? And I say, no, my name is Rehotsofetsi. And they say, yeah, yes, but do you have a nickname? It's little behaviors like that, which isn't malicious. It's not something where you you wake up in the morning being like, how do I make black people feel bad today? No one, I, I hope no one wakes up like that, but it's through I don't like the word microaggressions aggressions in this particular example, but it's microactions well, that you're unconscious about. A general sensitivity. Yeah. In general, it might not even mean sensitivity. It's just being aware um, because you could be aware of something happening and not be sensitive to it. You know, I'm aware of your issues, but I don't need to now deal with it. Right? And that awareness is what we're lacking because if you aren't aware, you can't even get to being sensitive about a topic. So if someone does come in, that was the big confrontation because now Rosemary Hall is coming out and saying, this is who we are. And the university community says, no, we, didn't, we don't like this new version of black students on campus who verbalize their issues. We're going to downplay it. Um, so that would be my not catch-all solution, but to say those are the three steps I would advise people take. But the first two are easy. I mean, the first one is really hard if you don't have the language, but most people have that sense. The first two are easy to get through, but that third one is the key one if you really want people to live together in a society and recognize their differences rather than just like being unified in your diversity. I think it's a phrase I use. We get sucked into, let's just be diverse and be unified, but I don't really need to know who you are. And I don't have to do anything about it. Exactly. Um, and I think that is the biggest inhibitor, and it's one of those things where the Rainbow Nation narrative stops us from taking that extra step. Uh, I, I, I'm finding this very, very interesting. Yeah. The way that you, you, you put it in those three steps. Yeah. Um, I think anyone listening to this would just say, well, that's it's, it's so – Correct, and it's so appropriate that people should have this feeling there's nothing wrong with it, you yep. know? So why is there so much political turmoil <laughs> around it? But I suppose when you see people on TV and yep. statues are being defaced and they're falling down, that, that, that doesn't seem so appropriate. And then yep. you get this backlash against it. We've got a WhatsApp someone sent us. 
Oh, are whites allowed to call you a coconut, or is it politically incorrect? <laughs> <laughs> um, are whites allowed to call me a coconut? I've never been called a coconut by a white person because I don't really think white people would know the phrase. I feel like everyone will have any social community will have an alternative to the phrase coconut. Right, there will be some sort of derivative of it. Even within the white community, I would assume that there would be some people who are like, yeah, you're white, but you're not really part of our group. Like, you're here, but like you're here because we're allowing you in. But if you don't behave, we'll kick you out of our social group, right? So the term, I don't want people to be like, oh, it's not PC to say it. The term is not a term to just be used around. The term that how I use it now is a way of conceptualizing particular groupings in social groupings. Right. And you could apply it in different contexts. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you want to use it as a PC term. Um, go ahead. I don't know how you would use it or what the context would be. Just me calling you a coconut. <laughs> but I, I took yeah. permission from your book because that's how you start off. Yeah. So, so I, I don't think I'm yeah, appropriate. So, <laughs> so I use it in a particular way of so I describe panache as like coconut chukumadze simply because I wanted it to be seen as like comrade Shikumatsu, if that makes sense, um, of coconuts, you need to see them as an organized grouping. And if you title them in that way, but I wouldn't walk out of the studio and go to Banashi and be like, hey, coconut, how <laughs> yeah. are you doing today? I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it in that term. It's more to conceptualize a topic. <laughs> I want to move on to de the decolonization of yes. education. Firstly, your thoughts on the decolonization of education. Yeah, so decolonization is like this hot potato issue in the country, and people might be disappointed in my viewpoint from both sides. Um, so usually people see decolonization as, as two things. One is we want to Africanize things more. We want to make sure that African literature comes through to the forefront. We want to make sure that African authors are privileged. On the other side, it's seen as you're, you're just you're just trying to undo colonialism, but like colonialism doesn't exist now. So we don't understand what your argument is. Like if uh, I love this example of you can't decolonize gravity. It's scientific. It's when you drop something, it falls. Like how do you decolonize that? I take the viewpoint of decolonization is not arbitrarily privileging certain forms of knowledge over others. And that arbitrary privileging is the most important thing. So let's go into philosophy. Philosophy is probably the easiest one. Um, if someone says, I want to study John Rawls, for instance, um, why? Right? It mustn't be that we're going to study John Rawls for the sake of studying John Rawls. There should be that inquisitive mindset to say, but why should we study John Rawls? And then you say, this is why we study John Rawls. You say, cool, that's fantastic. Tell me more about him. And the question is, do you apply that to other thinkers as well? So compare John Rawls to extreme example, Robert Zabuka's writings about the economy, right? Why? That question of why never even happens. It's not in people's mindsets whatsoever. So you've arbitrarily privileged a form of knowledge over another one from pure ignorance. And within a university context, and I really speak about universities in particular, it stifles that search for knowledge. It's to say just because you don't know about it, therefore it's incorrect. And people will come back and be like, yeah, but, but science. <laughs> like gravity. And I say, no, 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 gravity is gravity. It's fine. Um, but let's just diversify the authors of it and the textbooks that we read. Not to say that one textbook would be better than the other because it's written by a black author. 
but it's to say that historically we have seen that certain forms of knowledge, so arithmetic, was created in the Middle East first. Now, do people know that? That historical context of where ideas come from allow you to associate ideas to certain groupings so they don't get evased from history. If your society came out and was like, cool, we invented the cure for cancer 300 years ago, and then someone rocks up 50 years, like 300 years ago, and then someone rocks up like 50 years later being like, I did it, and then everyone privileges that person, right? Not necessarily the knowledge, but that person. It means that that other society that created the knowledge gets erased. Now, that could be good or bad, but if that society claims its place, do you reject them offhand? And that's the question that we ask. So for me, it's about having a pure search for knowledge without privileging anyone just because of your geographical region or racial background. And that's where some students get angry with me, being like, but we want to Africanize. And I say, well, that's an arbitrary way of privileging knowledge. Just because you're African doesn't mean that you are smarter. All I want to see is making sure that when knowledge gets produced, I can ask the question of, have we, to the fullest of our extent, put all the options on the table? It's very interesting hearing, hearing your thoughts. Um, I do have a question. I think it might not be so much addressed to you as rather to the broader decolonization movement. Yeah. The world today is a super-connected, highly competitive network of countries and economies. Yeah. Success is dependent on education and building links between countries and people. There are winners and there are losers in this new world. Yeah. And no company or no potential business partner is has any sympathy for one country's identity issues. Surely, and I'm in education, so I sit at principals' conferences and I have the yeah. reports, I read reports. Surely our biggest challenge in South Africa today is educating our youth, primary, secondary, and tertiary education. From successful countries, we know what works and we know what drives success. Surely implementing best educational practices in, from successful countries into South Africa should be seen as our greatest urgency so that our youth can become players in the 21st century economy that's going to be unfolding from now onwards. Yeah. Currently, in benchmarking, international benchmarking uh, educational tests, one of them, TIMS, South African children, school children, perform on the same level of performance as Yemen and Haiti. Both of those are failed states. Mm. And we are a developing country with a big budget that we spend on education. Meanwhile, recent arrivals at the top of these comparison league tables, Singapore, China, and South Korea, and they're only there recently in the last so many decades, yeah. keep pulling ahead. How necessary is decolonization? Is it a luxury form? We can say maybe na you know, navel-gazing for privileged people in South Africa who already are in university. That's why your, your statistic, you know, your, your fact about all these IEB graduates yeah. sitting in university and leading the Fees Must Fall campaign. Are we not moving the focus from where it should be onto something else? Yeah. Okay. There's a few questions there. One on – so I use this. So when people talk about international benchmarks, so this is my, my public policy kicking in. It's of, yes, fantastic, use international benchmarks, um, but be careful about, and I use this phrase at my workplace now, of having a locally sensitive solution that is still globally competitive. Very right? good phrase. Say that again. <laughs> a locally sensitive solution that is still globally competitive, right? It doesn't mean that it has to be completely local, right? So a lot of people will say, oh, look at the Scandinavian countries. They're so fantastic. And I say, well, 
where did the Scandinavian countries get their international best practice from? Right? Did they go off to China? Did they go off to South America to be like, what are you guys doing? Can we take it? No, they devised their solutions internally and took bits and pieces of what the rest of the world was doing. So it's my one warning when people are like, international, let's just like copy, what's that, international baccalaureate. I think that's what they call it. Bring it, yeah. Bring it to South Africa. Oh, wait, wait, wait. That might not work, um, for instance. So, so to answer that. The other one is, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, the... We should focus on basic education. Your protest is this high-level protest, right, that isn't solving this basic education issue. So we devised this argument a while ago where we said, and it got, it got you know, when you devise an argument, but you don't have, like, the necessary facts to, like, back it. So it's just like a theoretical argument that you're like, this must make sense. We don't have the evidence. I found the evidence, which is fantastic. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's a paper that was written for the World Bank that came out and showed that in South Africa, South Africa has one of the highest returns on higher education in the world, simply because of the type of inequality that we have, right? It's a very simple way of describing because of the low base. When you get a university degree, most you there are exceptions, but you will most likely get a job and the income that you get compared to where you were before is huge. So the question is, if this is now factually the way you get out, right, there should be a focus on university, right? Not to say that you don't focus on basic education, but it's to say, how do we keep pumping money back into the system, right, so that we can keep benefiting? So there's some good in making sure that university students get out of the system with a job. Um, and one of the best ways, since one of the highest reasons why people don't graduate is because of fees. It's not because people aren't smart. You'd have the most intelligent student in a university who is A grade and for whatever reason didn't get a scholarship for tons and tons of different reasons. But they can't graduate because they owe fees. But if they do graduate, they'll have the highest returns on their income in the world where they could probably pay off the fees. So that's a weird situation to be in. So that's the one thing of like why fees must fall is important and many other arguments. But it doesn't mean we must ignore basic education. Fees must fall never tried or students never tried to be like, oh, we shouldn't focus on basic education. We shouldn't try and make sure that um, the math skills are the equivalent of the best practicing countries in the world, whether it's Singapore or not. The Singapore country, I think there's historical reasons, but that's another discussion for another day. But it's to say we are fighting our fight to ensure that the individuals who succeed from the fight that we win have the tools, capital, because you can't do anything without some sort of economic capital, economic capital and the mindset, that social capital to say, how can I now redistribute my skills back to basic education? It's not a, we'll leave basic education alone. It's one of those of, this is one solution of how to solve it. It's not throwing money at a problem. I mean, South Africa throws money at basic education every single year. We've got one of the highest percentages of GDP thrown at educa basic education, and nothing has changed. It means there's something else in our educational system that's hampering us, right? And one of the solutions is, well, get more graduates out there, right? Create more role models. Create more people who might become teachers again, create more individuals who will contribute to the economy and through their taxes you can keep paying for basic education. These different ways of if these individuals are going to earn money 
and they're going to return that money through taxes if we can do that correctly, but not through VAT, <laughs> which is annoying because I remember telling the government years ago, we gave them their number that they gave for free education back in 2012. So the number they came up with, adjusted for inflation, we gave back in 2012. And we had a whole host of recommendations. And last on the list was increasing VAT, which they did. And I was like, no, don't be that person. Um, so these numerous ways of making it, there's that phrase, pay it forward. That phrase of paying it forward, and that's our model of university students, and it could be flawed, fundamentally flawed in a few ways, but I, I like being naive about these things at times, of when they leave, they will pay it forward back to society, and that will help the basic education system, in my naive view of basic education. <laughs> and in the, as far as a, a positive view of humanity as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, the fees must fall and the roads must fall movements. Yes. We're not caring much about them this time. It's already November, and I think all the universities have very smooth, flowing, running exam schedules currently yeah. at the moment. <laughs> what, what, what's an update on these two movements? So I'm not on the ground, so I can't be the spokesperson for them. But I also find it odd. So in the middle of everything, they were like, why are you protesting? And then when we're not protesting, it's like, why aren't you protesting? I'm thinking, what do you want from us? <laughs> um, I think for Rose Must Fall in particular, Rose Must Fall, I deal with this in the book. In my view, my personal view is that Rose Must Fall was never supposed to be a longstanding organization. In fact, Rose Must Fall had to die for a particular cause and for a particular reason because Rose Must Fall's purpose was to do that first step. Rosemont's purpose was to give people the language of understanding their circumstances in society as a collective grouping, which South Africa hadn't had amongst black youth in particular since the apartheid, essentially. After apartheid ended, there hadn't been many youth groupings that had one common understanding and language to understand your issues in society, regardless of your class and regardless of your socioeconomic background. It was, these are common things that we should all galvanize around for particular reasons, right? But you give people that language. It was never supposed to be a vehicle that lasts forever, but its legacy does persist. So at UCT in particular, you still have discussions of how you decolonize the curriculum. These whole workshops and committees that are set up. Now, maybe they've buried it in bureaucracy, possibly, um, but you do have this flowing through. So... I never thought I would see another black dean at a university, especially UCT. All of a sudden, there are three black deans, at, two, two black deans at the University of Cape Town, which is fantastic. And one of the things that blew my mind the most was there was this common phrase of, no, it takes about 20 years to find an academic, therefore there aren't any black academics. And I was like, well, apparently no one was studying before apartheid. Now all of a sudden when we have these conversations, all of a sudden we're finding all the black academics across the world and bringing them back in. In terms of fees must fall, that's a bit more worrying for me because that movement could have kept on going in a different vehicle. But there was too much fixation on the fee debate rather than the socioeconomic circumstances of black students on campus. Now, there's different reasons why it doesn't function. Political parties stepped up in certain campuses, um, in certain instances, um, but also the announcement of free education has made everyone sit back and say, we'll wait for the announcement. So this is why this year has been quite quiet. I think if the promise doesn't come through, things might change. 
We've just finished our conversation. The book is Breaking a Rainbow, Building a Nation, The Politics Behind, Hashtag Must Fall Movements. And the author is Rechot Sofetsi Shikani. Thank you so much for your time, your yeah. passion, and uh, for contributing to the debate around yeah. identity and education in South Africa. Thanks so much. And please get the book and all that jazz. <laughs>